iTunes presents Meet the Author. Good evening and welcome to the Apple Store Regent Street. Uh, Slam, published by Penguin, is the latest book from author Nick Hornby. Uh, the novel is available in hardcover and now in paperback uh, from all good bookshops. Uh, the Slam audiobook, read by skin star Nicholas Holt, is now available for purchase on iTunes. Tonight's event is being recorded and will become the first episode in a new podcast series of author events. The podcast, along with a celebrity playlist of Nick Hornby's favourite music, will be available next week. Sam Conniff, Managing Director of Youth Marketing Agency Liberty, will conduct uh, tonight's session. Liberty managed the marketing of SLAM when it was originally published last year. Please join me in welcoming Nick Hornby to the Regent Street Apple Store. Thank you. That's the most people that have ever clapped me in my life. That's brilliant. <laughs> Thank you for that. I can enjoy your success vicariously. Uh, Nick Hornby began his career as an English teacher before going on to write uh, plays for, for television, uh, before going on to write the best-selling novels about a boy, High Fidelity, How to Be Good, A Long Way Down, amongst others. Uh, he's written three works of non-fiction, the hugely popular Fever Pitch, 31 Songs, and the Polysyllabilic Spree. To get that right? Not and really. And Fever Pitch, <laughs> About a Boy and High Fidelity are all incredibly successful films in their own right. He lives in North London, as close as he can to the Arsenal. Um, and Slam is his latest and excellent novel, uh, which is why we're here, obviously. And to begin with, Nick's going to read us uh, a passage from the book. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read from... Uh, Towards the beginning of the book, this kid Sam is, um, well, it's his 16th birthday that I'm going to read about. Um, he has been seeing a girl called Alicia. Um, they fell madly in love, spent every minute together, uh, and then split up after about three weeks. Um, and he's just sort of getting used to the idea that she's, she's not around anymore. Sam's a skater, and he talks to a poster of Tony Hawk, um, and Tony Hawk talks back in lines from his own autobiography. Um, so Sam's about to find out that his relationship with Alicia isn't over yet. The funny thing was, going out with Alicia had done me no end of good at school, especially with girls. A few people had seen me with her at the cinema and they told other people that I was with this beautiful girl, and I think it made everyone look at me in a new way. It was as if Alicia gave me a makeover. I think that was how I ended up going to McDonald's with Nikki Nidzvicki on the night before my 16th birthday. She was exactly the sort of girl who wouldn't have looked twice at me before Alicia. She went out with older boys, usually, probably because she looked five years older than any of us. She spent a lot of money on clothes, and you never saw her without makeup on. When we went to McDonald's, she told me she wanted a baby, and I knew I wouldn't be having sex with her ever, not even with five condoms. <laughs> what for? I said. I don't know. I like babies. There isn't anything I really want to study at college, and I can always get a job when my baby's older. She's one of those people that asks questions all the time. They drive me nuts. 
Yeah, well, my mum had a baby when she was 16. Yeah, see, that's what I mean, she said. What? Well, you're probably more like mates, aren't you, you and your mum? That's what I want with my kid. I don't want to be like 50 when he's 16. You can't go out with them then, can you? To clubs and that, because you'd be like an embarrassment. Oh, yeah, I wanted to say, that's what it's like. Clubbing, clubbing, clubbing. If you can't go clubbing with your mum, then what use is she? I wanted to go home, and for the first time since we'd split up, I missed Alicia. Or at least, I felt nostalgic. I remembered how great it had been the evening when we hadn't gone to the cinema because we'd had too much to say to each other. Where had all those words gone? They got sucked into Alicia's TV. I wanted them back. I walked Nikki home, but I didn't kiss her. I was too scared. If she got pregnant sometime in the next couple of weeks, I didn't want her to have any saliva or anything that she could use in evidence against me. You can't be too careful, can you? Have I done the wrong thing? I said to Tony Hawk when I got home. Do you think I should still be with Alicia? If something in my life didn't revolve around skating, then I had a hard time figuring it out, said TH. He was talking about Sandy again, his first real girlfriend, but it might have been his way of saying, how the hell do I know I'm only a skater? Or even, I'm only a poster. I decided he was telling me that I should stick to skating for the time being and leave girls alone. After my evening with Nikki, that seemed like pretty good advice. I never had the chance to put it into action though. The next day, my 16th birthday, my life started to change. The day began with cards and presents and donuts. Mum had already been to the baker's by the time I woke up. My dad was supposed to be coming over for tea and cake in the afternoon. And in the evening, Mum and I were going to Pizza Express in the cinema. I got the first text from Alicia straight after breakfast. It just said, I need to see you, urgent, eh? Who was that? said Mum. Oh, no one. Is that a miss, no one? said Mum. She was probably thinking of Nicky because she knew we'd been out the previous evening. Not really, I said. I knew it didn't make any sense, because either someone was a girl or they weren't, unless you're talking about men who dress up as girls, but I didn't care. Part of me was panicking. It wasn't my head so much as my guts. I think my guts knew what it was about, even if my head didn't, or pretended it didn't. I'd never forgotten that time when something half happened, when I hadn't put anything on. The part of me that was panicking because of the text had never really stopped panicking since the half-happening day. I went and locked myself in the bathroom and texted her back. I said, not today, my birthday, SXX. If I got something back from that, then I knew I was in trouble. I flushed the loo and washed my hands just to make mum think I'd actually been doing something. And even before I'd opened the door, my phone beeped again. The text just said, urgent, our Starbucks, 11 a.m. And then all of me knew. Guts, head, heart, fingernails. I texted back, okay. I didn't see how I could do anything else, even though I wanted to do anything else. When I went back into the kitchen, I wanted to sit on my mum's lap. I know that sounds stupid and babyish, but I couldn't help it. On my 16th birthday, I didn't want to be 16 or 15 or any teen. I wanted to be three or four and too young to make any kind of mess apart from the mess we make when you scribble on walls or tip your food bowl upside down. I love you, Mum, I said when I sat down at the table. She looked at me as if I'd gone mad. I mean, she was pleased, but she was pretty surprised. Oh, I love you too, sweetheart, she said. I tried not to get choked up. 
If Alicia was going to tell me what I thought she was going to tell me, I reckoned it would be a long time before Mum said that again. Might be a long time before she even felt it. All the way there, I was doing all kinds of deals, or trying to. You know the sort of thing. If it's okay, I'll never skate again, as if it had anything to do with skating. I offered never to watch TV again, and never to go out again, and never to eat McDonald's again. Sex never came up, because I already knew I was never going to have sex again, so that didn't seem like a deal God would be interested in. <laughs> I might as well have promised him that I wouldn't fly to the moon or run down Essex Road naked. Sex was over for me forever, no doubt. Alicia was sitting at the long counter in the window with her back to everyone. I saw her face as I was walking in without her seeing me, and she looked pale and frightened. I tried to think of some other things that could make her that way. Maybe her brother was in trouble. Maybe her ex-boyfriend had threatened her or threatened me. I wouldn't mind taking a beating, I thought. Even if it was a serious beating, I'd be better in a few months, probably. Say he broke both my arms and both my legs. I'd be walking around again by Christmas. I didn't go over and say hello straight away. I got in the queue to buy myself a drink. If my life was about to change, then I wanted the old life to last for as long as possible. There were two people in front of me, and I hoped they had the longest and most complicated orders Starbucks had ever heard of. I wanted someone to order a cappuccino with all the bubbles taken out by hand, one by one. I felt sick, of course, but it was better to feel sick without knowing for sure. In the queue, I could still imagine it was going to be a beating, but once I'd spoken to her, that would be that. The woman in front of me wanted a cloth to wipe up some orange juice her kid had spilt on the table. It took no time at all. I couldn't think of a difficult drink. I asked for a frappuccino. At least the ice takes a long time. And then, when I'd got my drink, there was nothing else to do except go and sit next to Alicia at the counter. Hello, I said. Happy birthday, she said, and then, I'm late. I understood straight away what she meant. <laughs> you were here before me even, I said. I couldn't resist it. I wasn't trying to be funny and I wasn't being thick. I was just putting off the moment, hanging on to the old Sam. I didn't want the future to come, and what Alicia was about to say was the future. I'm late with my period, she said, straight away. And that was it. The future had arrived. Thank you. That's e excellent, and so much better to he hear you read it. Um, the scope for uh, um, an adult author to get it wrong, trying to speak in the voice of a 16-year-old boy, is quite huge. Um, and you, you didn't. You, you nailed it. And that's my opinion, and that's what I've read in quite a few reviews, and obviously the response. How did you get yourself, you know, that many years, not that many years back, but those, those few years back <laughs> into the mind of a 16-year-old? Um, it does seem incredibly close to me, and the more I thought about his predicament in the book, actually the closer it came, and it kind of um, uncovered memories, I, I thought, were long gone. Um, specific memories of Sam's experiences? Yes, I mean, specific memories of Sam's experiences uh, in terms of... Um, what it felt like to fall in love when you were 16, what it felt like to, like to fall out of love when you were 16, usually within the same sort of month or two month That's period. That's a relationship. Um, uh, the general feeling of um, lots of different emotions in the same day mm. as well. 
um, feeling you know very high and feeling very low and feeling very aggressive and feeling all all these things which and that that might be a kind of regular school day that might be one double geography lesson that you feel these things um, and the other the other decision I took fairly quickly was not to use language that um, was specifically um, connected to a teenager now because yeah. pretty much by the time paperbacks come out then it's finished and you look I think a bit like your uncle trying to dance and um, I think there's nothing worse really yeah yes there's nothing worse um, <laughs> and you keep, you keep, it keeps a very honest voice throughout the whole thing um, I felt I mean I'm called Sam I think I'm 16 most of the time um, <laughs> was an avid skateboarder and so I you know I had a real connection to it but it was billed when we were promoting it as a, your first teenage novel was that a very conscious decision to write something for young people no, um, I, I felt that I'd had a connection with younger people. I know that um, the last couple of years, for example, kids, some kids have been reading Fever Pitch mm. at school. And in fact, my, um, my next door neighbor, um, teenage lads who live next door, they thrust their exam paper over the fence and there were questions about Fever Pitch on there exam paper which was very weird um, yeah an interesting sense of recognition though well I you don't want to hear the author you're studying for O-level shouting <laughs> through the walls do you I, I, I never came very close to that when I was a kid I never heard Ian Forster yelling at his kids um, so, so that the whole thing sort of freaked me out a bit but about a boy I suppose was a um, a turning point in terms of I know a lot of young people saw the movie and then read the book as a consequence I know a lot of young people have read it since um, and then in a long way down there was a uh, uh, a girl in her late teens mm. and that as well so I felt that there was this connection there and it just felt like the, the next stop on a, a journey to me that's a real journey as well to go from being an English teacher to then ending up on an English exam yes I hadn't thought of it like that <laughs> <laughs> I might have ended up teaching myself if I'd stayed there I think that's, that's <laughs> that would be very surreal. Um, uh, was there much, uh, in terms of collaboration, trying to get into an un understanding and mindset? Did you test it as you were writing it with any young people? No, I, <coughs> I, I have uh, nephews and nieces around the right age, and they, they read it when I finished, but they didn't really have any comments to make. My, my nephew, um, who um, is always vile to me, he said it was... Um, one of the closest books he'd ever come to capturing his own experience and I, I, I took more out of that than just about anything else I think. Excellent and because children can be the harshest and, and most honest critics. Yes, yeah. Um, and then some of the, the I, what I felt would be the mo more, most difficult parts to write is as Sam projects into the future and has to face all the different consequences um, and they're really tough and really sensitive things and would be really easy to get, you know, how did you, was there much reason, I mean because you've dealt with issues around teenage pregnancy better than some government campaigns and that's you know we've spoken to the DCFS about it they were amazed with how on message you were but was there much research to that or was that just your understanding um, well I, I'd like to say I researched for two years or something so I could get it right but no everything I think comes as a consequence of if you've got the character right in the first place and if you've got the voice right in the first place and you think you know the person then um, I think that the truth of the situation comes revealed to you as a writer. I chose those, uh, Sam 
gets whizzed, as he says, into the future yeah. three times in the book. And uh, once is when the baby is very young, once is when he's a toddler, and once you don't see the baby, but it, it shows Sam dealing with the consequences of being a parent and, and not being with the mum. One of the things I wanted to do with those things was to show that actually uh, the whole experience of being a parent, if you're on the outside of it, is incredibly scary, I think. Mm. And it's only once you have the emotional bond with the child that you start to feel that you can manage it. And of course, when Sam catches up with himself, when, he, when these things happen to him in the present, he's, he's much more equipped to deal with them simply because he has a bond with his own son. And then... With, I mean, it's a big, <coughs> big questions, and without giving it away, because you, you stay on tenterhooks, really not quite knowing which way Sam should go or what decision he's going to make. Abortion, I mean, y and you're not, uh, you're no stranger to tackling serious issues in your other work, but abortion is one of the massive, last great taboos. You know, w did you have to make a decision there? Did you want to? How far did you want to get into that? And, and did you decide to or not to, depending on the issue? Well, it's. I think that's interesting, and um, I don't know how many people have seen Juno. Um, which yeah. um, kind of, I read criticisms of Juno uh, in, in terms of its uh, approach to abortion. Um, there was an article in The Guardian saying basically that the, the heroine had let the, let the side down by not considering it seriously. Well, it, she did consider it seriously mm. in Juno. She went in and she came out again. She decided not to have one. But the truth is that if you want to write about what it's like to be a young parent, then abortion for obvious reasons, has to be skirted round. Otherwise, you can't write about the issue. I knew that Sam and Alicia would have a baby. Um, and so I had to get myself over that moment where they might consider it. In, in the book, Alicia doesn't want to, I think, for all sorts of reasons. But um, one is that she's read a lot of stuff on the internet that she has been sort of influenced by that's, that's from evangelists and, uh, and people like that. Always a very dangerous thing to do. Yes. But, th you know, if you look out in the street, you know, England is, as you know, we have the highest teen pregnancy rates in Europe. That's a lot of people not having abortions. So I was slightly puzzled myself, but it, 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 I'm only puzzled in the way that one would be if you looked out the window, really. Yeah. No, and it was so impressive the way it was tackled. It's 40 years since the laws changed around that, and it still remains such an issue. Um, and it wasn't just DCFS that we talked to, you know, this is bang on, but the kids that we work with and their response to it equally, and that's a really big gap to manage to... Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad. But it, was a, it was a difficult part of the book, and it was something that, that caused me some concern when I, when I was writing it. Well, uh, the only thing that I thought really broke with the kind of it, it, how well it fitted with all the different kind of brand messages, and I know you weren't writing it to those, was them, that typically it's, it's the boys who are trying to uh, get sex, and in this instance it's Alicia. Were you trying to mess with the stereotype, or is she just a bit loose? <laughs> um, I think that I, I, I think that the, the beauty, in a way, of the modern world for writers is that anyone can be anything that you want them to be, and no one really questions it. Mm. Um, that you know, if you want a guy who's like this, well, there, there's one out there in the world somewhere yeah. and um and those stereotypes and gender roles are breaking down i think at a rate of knots so i i chose to have alicia put the pressure on sam slightly because um i thought it it was a more interesting area to go into yeah and it what and you end up feeling quite sorry for, well i ended up feeling well i would i've ended up feeling really really sorry for sam 
Yeah, I, I felt a bit sorry for Alicia because at the time that they, they decide to, to have sex, she's feeling rejected by him and, and very vulnerable. Mm. And she's clearly um, a girl who has a, a low self-image anyway. And I'm sure that's how it happens an awful lot. And there's a lot I've read in, in other interviews with you about the autobiographical nature of previous books. You just mentioned it then briefly about Sam and your own experiences. Mm. But how much of Sam is, is you and your experience? I think all the books, apart from Fever Pitch, which is literally about me, um, the rest are all some kind of emotional autobiography. So that, you know, none of those things happened to me in any of those books. Um, but I think that as a writer, you use things that you've felt and, and put them in the book in order to try mm. and. Uh, try and be accurate about the emotional state of a character. It doesn't feel like writing autobiography to me. I mean, I wasn't a skater. Uh, I wasn't a teenage dad. Uh, I had a different background from, from Sam. All of these things, all the autobiographical narrative details are different. But I wanted to understand what it felt like to be a 16-year-old who, who felt vulnerable and confused. And of course, I, I was that boy at one stage in my life. And even more difficult, I think, probably, than trying to write like a teenager, um, uh, is trying to write like a living skateboard legend. <laughs> and I know quite a few of Tony, or whether it's all Tony's quotes come from his own book. Yeah, they but do. Was that from his real book? How did you manage to have the authentic voice of a Californian? No, it's, it's all from his book. I just copied it out straightforwardly. Um. With, with Tony's approval? How did you get around that? Yeah. It was with his approval. When, when I started, I presumed that um, Sam would be talking to a footballer. Right. And, um, and, yeah, it was, I thought, going to be Thierry Henry. And um, I'd already used all those letters, all the THs, so I thought, who else is right. TH? Uh, <laughs> um, but, it, but what you were saying, in fact, when you came up the stairs here, which is that you felt alienated from football at the moment, it's... The more I thought about it, the more I thought that a kid like Sam wouldn't have the relationship with football that I had when I was a teenager. I don't think football is as cool for a certain kind of teenage mm. boy as it used to be. It's so sort of Nikeized and ubiquitous and everywhere. Um, and of course, it's astonishingly expensive to go to a football match now. So most kids can only go three or four times a year and, and they don't have the connection that I had when I was 16. I, I told someone the other day, it used to cost me the same to get into Arsenal as it cost me to go on the tube to get to Arsenal. And of course, the numbers are ridiculous because yeah. I'm very old, but that was, that was the balance. It, you know, you paid the public transport exactly the same uh, entrance fee. And now it's, of course, 20 times what you pay on the tube. Um, so I had to think about something else. I, I wanted something else for Sam that he, he would think was cool. And what interests me about Tony Hawk is that I don't think people of my generation know who he is at all. And yet, he's one of the most famous men in the world. Mm. So it was a perfect generation. Game. I was really surprised when I got the first book synopsis through, that, <coughs> and no offence, that you knew who Tony Hawk was. Well, the reason I knew who he was was because a few years ago I got sent a Tony Hawk poster. <laughs> um, and in this poster, he's holding High Fidelity. He's right. standing on a skateboard holding high fidelity, and he did it for an American library campaign. And, um, and I said to my publishers, why have you sent me a poster of a man standing on a skateboard <laughs> holding my book? And they said, well, 
he's not really a man, you know, he's, he's Tony Hawk. And uh, then I, I understood. So I knew that he liked, he'd read my stuff and liked it. So I, I got in touch with him through his management company and, and said, no, this is what I'm intending to do and you'll be this guru to the boy. The boy talks to you all the way through and you talk back in lines from your own autobiography. And he, I heard back from him and he couldn't have been more sort of friendly and, and generous. Do you know if he likes the book? He, he, he said so. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, when I was doing an American book tour, he was doing an American tour promoting a video game. And I noticed on a couple of TV chat shows, he was actually asked about the book. So I thought, right. no, this is brilliant. I'm sending this very famous yeah. person out on the road to promote my book. <laughs> it's a genius bit of marketing. It is. I didn't realize it, of course, until way no, too no, late. No. But Talking of genius bits of marketing, um, the campaign around <laughs> Slam was uh, for young people to come for and design their own uh, posters of their bedroom heroes. Every kid has their, their heroes yeah. up on their wall. Um, uh, and Lily Allen, I believe, was the winner. Uh, not Lily Allen herself, but it's a poster of Lily yeah. Allen, um, for which there were some very circumspect reasons behind his choice. Boris Johnson was one of the runners-up, though. Poster of Boris Johnson submitted by a 20-year-old lad from Stockwell. Yes. Um, well, I, I had to go through these posters, and... Um, and, you know, there was a, a Lily Allen and there was a James Brown and yep. there were all sorts of people. And then suddenly there was Boris Johnson. And I just burst out laughing. <laughs> and uh, it was quite nicely done as well. So I thought, well, that has to be in, in the shortlist, just for the sheer brass neck of entering Boris Johnson for a competition like that. <laughs> um, and who was yours? Who was your role model? Who was the poster you had on your wall? As well, I wouldn't call him a role model, but there was an Arsenal player called Charlie George. Um, in the 1970s, who um, was the sort of our version of George Best, the bad boy right. with the long hair, um, and also a, uh, a blues rock guitarist called Rory Gallagher, who was my first rock hero. He's on your iTunes playlist, celebrity playlist, I believe. I believe. Um, as well as being surprised that you knew who Tony Hawk was, uh, the first time I, I met you, you'd come to our office um, and we worked together on this amazing project called Spinebreakers.co.uk. Uh, which is a Penguin Backs initiative where young people take on the challenge of reading, writing and taking apart, putting together books. Um, and you were approached immediately by uh, Ellie, Jelly Ellie, 17-year-old, incredibly bright, uh, forthright young woman. And you were immediately locked into a conversation about downloading this, that and the other, this website and the rest. And again, no offence, I was quite <laughs> surprised. Was that you, you brushed up before you met the kids or are you genuinely a bit of a geeky nerd? I'm not a geeky nerd. Um, I... The moment I understood what all this stuff was, mm. I, I, I wanted the music. Um, I always overcome my technophobia if I can see the immediate benefit. So um, my, my wife bought me an iPod, I think, you know, quite some years ago, sort of 2001, 2002, I, don't, I can't right. remember. And, and I, I That's pretty on it. That's like first generation. Yeah, well, she's, she's good like that. And, um, and I thought, well, I'm not going to want a gadget and I'll never use it. And then she sort of explained to me patiently what it was. And my <laughs> jaw dropped to my knees. Um, and immediately I learned how to do it because I wanted to carry my music collection around in this little box. Um, I think the, the website stuff comes from, um, well, to put it bluntly, doing nothing all day. You know, I'm a writer <laughs> and... Um, and I get distracted very easily and I start messing about. So what was the first bit of, what, when, when you had the epiphany, what was the first piece of music you ever successfully downloaded? 
Good grief, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I think, you know, it was probably the album I bought that week. I, I, I mostly use it for new music, you know, it's easier to listen to new music that way. What's, what's on the iPod at the moment? What's the new music you're listening to? Um, well, I, I'm going to go and see um, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings next week, you know, Amy Winehouse's right. backing band. Um, yep. So I've been listening to them. Um, there's a Canadian singer-songwriter called Kathleen Edwards, who I love. Um, I, I, there's always something. I've always found something new. Well, I, I enjoyed, and I urge you to go and enjoy, uh, uh, Nick's Celebrity Playlist. Oh, thank um, you. It's quite all right. Um, the, the, the tune that makes you bust a gut at the gym, I, I, I enjoyed. <laughs> As you can see, my, no gut has been busted. And uh, in the little explanations, This Is Me Trying, which is your first uh, song. Yes. You say there's a story to that, which is it takes longer to get into than you've possibly got time for on iTunes. So do you have time to explain a little bit about that story? Well, um, this, this song is called That's Me Trying, and it's by um, William Shatner. And, um, uh, and not to put too... <laughs> well, to cut a long story short, I wrote the song. Um, I wrote the words for the song, and Ben Folds, the musician, wrote, wrote the music. And... Um, I just had an email because I'd written about Ben Folds in 31 songs. He'd, he'd got in touch and we, we'd emailed back and forth a bit. And then I just got one saying, hey, do you want to write a song for William Shatner? I'm doing a whole album with him. <laughs> and, you know, what can you do if you get an email like that? You say, yes, I really, really, really want to write a song That's for a William Shatner. Yeah. yeah. Um, so <laughs> I sent, uh, I, I, I remember I sent two sets of lyrics, one that probably took me about seven hours and the other one that took me ten minutes and they chose the one that took ten minutes and, and recorded it but then a couple of days later um, the phone went and um, I picked it up and said oh hi it's Ben and I said oh hi Ben and we'd never spoken I think on the phone he said I'm just going to put you on to Bill and I was trying to go no I but it was too late I had William Shatner on the phone and, um, and he said oh I've just emailed you something he said, go to your computer. So I logged on, and there was a whole bunch of lyrics um, in a document. He said, I want you to work on all these. Um, I want you to, you know, to do it better. Um, I want you <laughs> he said, you're a poet. And I said, well, I'm not, actually. I'm not. <laughs> he said, oh, I thought Ben said you wrote poetry. Anyway, you're... It's a, Captain you know, Kirk, yeah. what are you going to say? He said, OK, open, open the first file. What's in the first file? And I, I said, oh, it's, it's a song... It's a lyrics called why me lord he said yeah 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 he said okay so what happened was i came back late one night and i found my wife lying dead in the swimming pool he said and so i wrote this song about it i wonder if you could work in this and make something <laughs> so i was like well that's quite personal <laughs> Bill, you know I, I think that would be better coming from you than from me and we went through the whole set of lyrics one by one like this and I, I ended up not being able to contribute anymore but it was a very memorable experience that's genius I'm glad I asked <laughs> I was mildly scared but I'm glad I did and and the music is you know runs throughout uh, nearly all, all the books all, all the ones I've read and High Fidelity was uh, the first I read do, do you draw much inspiration from music are there you know as I was listening to your soundtrack are there soundtracks you've listened to that you associate with the books as you've written them um I, I wouldn't say that um anything particularly stands out as being associated with one book or another but I do know that uh, I couldn't write without music in that 
for me, it's something that goes in and comes out as something else. And right. there, there's, a, there's a wonderful quote from a, um, a critic called Walter Pater who said, all art aspires to the condition of music. Um, and I really identify with that. I think that music is a, you know, the purest form of getting a job done in terms of expressing something. And it can, it can be done without words. And, and of course, that's what art's tr trying to do. And that's why art got more and more and more abstract when they were trying to recreate the condition of music, I think. And in, in a way, it's what I want to do in the books is to try and make them like songs so that you, you go on an emotional journey. And it's, it's not particularly what they're actually about, but the mm. feelings they give you. And something I had no idea about until doing a bit of research for today, doing my homework, um, was about your own musical career. And there's the band that you collaborate with uh, and perform. Oh, uh, yeah. Which um, sounds fa it's fascinating. It's an essay and a song. Tell us a little bit about that, please. Well, uh, I, a few years ago, I, I came across an album by an American band called Mirage, who I completely fell in love with. They're a sort of roots rock band. And. I went to see them and soon after that we sort of struck up a relationship and when they came to London we went out for a drink and stuff and after a while we decided to try and do something together. So I wrote five essays which um, were the sort of live equivalent of 31 songs. I chose five mm. concerts that have been particularly memorable um, for one reason or another uh, um, and talked about live music and uh, at the end of the essay they cover something that's come up and then the last essay is about them, and then they do their show. But it's fantastic for me. I, I, I get to um, uh, see them a lot, see them play live. I think they're a fabulous live band. And, you know, we've done it in really fun places. We did it at Dingwalls here. Um, and, yeah, it, it, it I think as I get older, I want to do more and more collaboration. I'm fed up of sitting on my own in a room. <laughs> and then the other thing I hadn't, I saw a lot of, the, you know, so many of the films famously are adapted into, into films, but um, I didn't realise High Fidelity had been turned into a musical. Yes. That must have been fun. Did you have much of a hand in writing the I didn't songs? do anything. I, I was contacted by some extremely nice people a few years ago, um, very talented songwriter, um, you know, team, lyricist and, and musician. And they said they wanted to do this, and then it just sort of took off, and they got backed to do it by uh, uh, a Broadway producer, and um, and it was great and really exciting, and it was one of the biggest Broadway disasters of the last four or five years. Um, I I went to the first night, and I really loved it, and uh, they got horrible reviews, and it was one of those things like you read about uh, about Broadway that you're at this party. And it's eight o'clock after the six o'clock show, or whatever, for a premiere, and um, and everyone's having a fantastic time. And then suddenly the room goes quiet, and everyone starts to go home. And it's because the first reviews are in. Right. And I think it opened on a Monday. It was closed the following Sunday, and it costs like ten million dollars to put on or something. That's pretty impressive, though. <laughs> if it's, it's going to bomb, do it, do it, well do it, it was properly. It, it, it did feel as though I'd taken part in a quintessentially Broadway story. Yes. You know, it, it, it may be much better than it running for years and years and me becoming a squillionaire with uh. seeing what it was like for those people. But I was very sad for them. And when I was, again, with this, the, the playlist as I was doing my, my research, it made me obviously think of Rob in High Fidelity. Um, I was wondering, you know, talking about the kind of technology, what you thought Rob, who's you know passionate, you know, very music purist, and the vi the vinyl and the tapes, how he would feel about, you know, downloading and iPods and the digital uh, digitalization and compression of music, and whether that was what, what your what your thoughts about it are. 
Um, I'm not an audiophile. I, I like the songs and I right. like to listen to them any way I can. And for me, uh, the whole digital thing's been fantastic. It's made music more convenient and um, it means that I never have to be without it. Rob would hate it. Um, mm. People have asked me several times if I'd ever write a sequel to one of the books and I think the only one that would tempt me would be High Fidelity. Right. Um, to see how Rob's age, but one of the things that stops me is I have no idea what he'd be doing now. I know he wouldn't have the shop anymore. The only guy I kn know who ran a record shop is now an estate agent. <laughs> And I, I didn't want to write a book about an estate agent. So. I'd be really sad if you brought Rob back as an estate agent. Yes. I think a lot of people would. And what, that's what, do you, what do you think he'd be doing? Uh, still bumming around, doing, doing... But he couldn't have the shop, could he? No. Maybe he's, running a, maybe he's running a download website that isn't doing so well. Yes. Are there such things <laughs> as unsuccessful download websites? Quite a lot of them, right, yeah. Okay. Well, that's, quite, that's not a bad job. You can have that one. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and that... Talking about the sequels of stuff, because I was going back, I haven't read all of your books, but that was the, the kind of popular culture references. Um, and is that, does that come with a risk in terms of dating your work? I mean, you know, if it, you know, when I was looking back over the ones I've got, it feels very much of the time it is then and now. And that's, does that come with a bit of a risk? Or do you do that consciously? Uh, I think it comes with a risk. I do it consciously. I, I kind of resent books where clearly people are keeping out all the popular culture references so they'll never tell you what someone's listening to or watching on TV or reading because they're frightened that the book will date. Um, I, I think that one thing about posterity is that you can't get posterity by trying to look after it now if you mm. see what I mean. Yep. So I'd rather be read now and if the book survive they survive but you know High Fidelity is 10 years old, Fever Pitch well, more, 13 years old, yeah. Fever Pitch is 16 years old they are lasting at the moment. Um, I think if they are published in 25 years, you might need footnotes. <laughs> that's okay. And thinking about dating, I saw something else that you'd said about um, that you write your books uh, for a woman, which I thought was very interesting. And does that mean that your books are really just some kind of big extended chat-up line? <laughs> and who is this woman? Well, I think it started because um, Fever Pitch, my first book, my agent was a woman and my editor was a woman and my wife was a woman <laughs> I'm just that way um, and uh, it was really knowing that those three people were going to be the first three people that read the book yep. made a big difference to me and it made a big difference to the tone of that book I think in an extremely helpful way if I'd maybe written it for a guy I, I might have tried to get more kind of blokey and train spottery about results and football and it made it less about football and more about the experience of what it is like to be consumed by something. And I think that really helped the book. And I, I've kind of carried that over, I think, um, since, since I've been writing. Well, that's what struck me as such an interest, because I would have, you know, stereotypically thought your books were more written uh, towards a male bias. Do you think much about, beyond the, this, the woman, do you think much about the broader audience? Does they, do they affect you when you're writing? No, I don't, I don't think it can. And, and, and the longer it goes on and the, the, the more you meet the readership, you, you, the more you see that it isn't one person or one kind of person and it's not all blokes, it's not all girls, it's or, or um, the same age either. So I tend to keep focused on some kind of imaginary figure. 
And what, what would you recommend? You do, um, I mentioned the brilliant spinebreakers.co.uk, um, wherein you've done quite a bit of mentoring and work with young people who are writing or wanting to break through. What's your, what are your tips to the wannabe and aspiring writers out there? Well, I'm very shocked about how few aspiring writers um, read on a regular basis. And I think that's the first thing you've got to tell people, is you've got to read everything. You've got to read everything you can get your hands on. Um, if, it's, if you know what kind of writing you want to do, what kind of territory you want to go into, you've got to um, re read all that stuff just to find out what a cliché is uh, beyond anything else. It's no good having the, the most brilliant idea in the world if somebody has been writing it for the last <laughs> ten years. Um, but of course, the more, the more you read, the more uh, writing feels less unmanageable, I think. And I know it's extremely important to me. No, it makes a, a lot of sense. But w what um, reading, the, well, finding out that you're actually a book reviewer as well seems like taking that to the next step. Well, the reviewing, uh, most of which I regret now, actually, um, was something I had to do when I was trying to get started. I, I, right. I got the chance to do it, and um, that was one of my main sources of income. Um, I still write my, I have a monthly books column in this the American in magazine. The Believer is Yeah, The I Believer, mean. yeah, which is, oh, that, yeah. That, that's really fun. That's, um, uh, it's more like a reading diary. Um, I can, I can be write reading books that were published 50 years ago or, or this week, and I don't, I, I don't have to write about anything that I don't want to. It's, uh, I'm just writing about the books I love reading, and it's, it's a great gig. And are there, are there any, you know, books that you can really cite as inspirations on you? Oh yes, um, there was a um, again back to the the, the women, but um, an American writer called Anne Tyler. When I started reading her, there, there were two books in particular. One's called The Accidental Tourist, and one's called Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant, and they had an electrifying effect on me, which uh, would probably mystify most people. But mm. when I read her, I knew what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And at the time, I wasn't really writing prose. So um, m my readers are terrible. They're always pitching they stuff. They, they're using you as a, as a <laughs> distraction yes, yeah. to shoplift. <laughs> and if we got rid of me, which would be no bad thing, and you were here, who would, you, who would the author be that you would like to sit down and interview, dead or alive? Uh, Dickens. Excellent. What would be your first question? <laughs> I'll, um, write I'll write it down. Well, Dickens, I think, invented 13,000 characters, which I think is one of the most astonishing achievements in literature. Who added that up? Not you. Uh, no, not me. That you can get dictionaries of Dickens' characters, that right. are, you know, like proper books, A to Z, just of characters. I that was um, so I'd like to ask him about how he remembered or how he managed to <laughs> delineate and, and distinguish 13,000 characters. And if there was a book you could have written that, that isn't one of yours, would it be Dickens? Um, someone asked me the other day, I had to do a questionnaire, so which book do you wish you'd written? And um, my honest answer was my next one, because um, <laughs> then it would be done. Um, uh, well, I, I think it probably would be The Accidental Tourist. 
Um, and I'm going to wrap up and uh, give over the microphone to the audience. Um, I did just want to ask you one last thing, which also was a surprise to me, uh, which is the work you do around the treehouse. Um, and I just thought it was worth giving you the chance just to mention that, because I'm a school governor at a, a school for children with autistic needs. And it oh, yeah. really which one? The Liberty School in Brixton. Oh, right, and okay. it just struck me what a practical solution you, you, you were suggesting there. So I just wanted to ask you if you'd say a couple of words of that. Well, my, my eldest son, I've got three boys, but the eldest one, who's 14, is severely autistic. And when he was diagnosed, there was nothing that um, we could find that we were happy with. Um, and we got together with a small group of North London parents who are exactly the same situation, and we basically founded a school. Um, I have to, I, at the time, it was done out of desperation, really, and I didn't know how long it was going to last. And at the first, these five kids were in a library in Golders Green, and that should be a proverb, you know, five autistic children in a library to replace bulls in china shops. Um, but it's sort of gone on and got solid. And now we, we, we've nearly finished building premises in, uh, in Muswell Hill. Um, and, and there are 55 kids at the school now. There'll be 80 when we finish. They all have one-to-one -one tuition. It's, it's an amazing place. Excellent. Well, whether it's books, films, or, or charities, you just seem to do brilliant, brilliant work. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so questions, I think there's a couple of microphones flying around, not literally, that would be wrong. Um, lady over there. Hello. Um, did you have any qualms with the movie version of High Fidelity being set in America? Um, the I was the about to answer that. The question that was, uh, people over here, did I have any qualms about High Fidelity being set in America? Um, it, uh, well, first of all, no, absolutely not, for a couple of reasons. One, um, when I knew it was going to be set in America, I already knew that it would be directed by Stephen Frears and starring John Cusack. And I think you're kind of a mug if you say, you know what, I'd really rather we <laughs> stuck to Holloway, you know. Um, and the people who wrote it, John was one of them, Cusack was one of them, they'd grown, grown up in Chicago, where, where, where it was set. And they thought, and, you know, in, in a nice way, in a way that I think a lot of people do, they thought that the book was about them. And they set it in their hometown, and they moved Rob's age slightly. Um, it was set in a slightly different period, so it was a different musical frame of reference. And... It became an adaptation in the best way, I think, which is they'd found themselves in it and they, they, they made something about them in a way that made the film come to life for me. Um, the other thing on a more practical level, I think that the music budget for the American High Fidelity was pretty much the same as the total budget for the English Fever Pitch. Um, in other words, if it had been set in London and it would, had been a smaller British film, there was every chance that no one could have afforded any of the music for it, which, given it was a film about music, would have been a trick missed, I think. I think it gave the film the best chance to have that kind of budget and those kinds of people involved. And I think it helped that Stephen was English. I think he understood the Englishness of the book and the doorness of it, and he, he stopped them getting all Hollywood on it. Excellent. Any more questions? Why am I picking the people? It's your <laughs> audience. Hi. Once you decided that Slam was going to be a young adult book, did you feel hemmed in by that at all, Ever? Well, I don't know. I don't really know what 
that means. And I didn't know um, when I was writing it what it meant. I all I knew was that the book would be narrated by a kid who was he's actually 18 looking back on his 15, 16. Um, I a absolutely didn't feel hemmed in any more than you feel hemmed in when you're writing about a character who's not yourself. I think, you know, looking, looking at a lot of my characters, they, they sometimes not the best at expressing themselves. Those are the kinds of people that I write about. I don't think Rob in High Fidelity was very good at that. Um, the guy in About a Boy wasn't very good at that. The kid could express himself, but he was a kid, and so on. Um, and so creating a character who does not maybe share your own facility for expression means that you have a limit and a discipline placed on you when you're writing. And in that way, Sam was exactly the same as all, all the other kids. Um, I didn't use as many Fs as possibly I do in my own, well, not in my own living room because my kids are there, <laughs> but uh, in my own office, on my own. Um, but that that's about it. I didn't feel hemmed in in any other way. I think that the more, in a way, the more discipline and limit you have set on you as a writer, the easier things become. Because if you've got the whole world to write about, where do you start? Do you swear a lot on your own? <laughs> <laughs> I do, yeah. Hi. Um, the question is why music seems to play less of a role in slam than in high fidelity. Um, pretty much the same reason that I was worried about using teen language um, for slam. That um, I think the music in high fidelity, for the most part, is a kind of um, a canon in that it's now accepted that the kind of music that Rob was selling and talking about is almost the best that rock music has to offer. And, and in that way, rock music has a library like classics and, and you, you, you go and draw stuff out from this library. I think with teen taste, it's remarkably fickle. Um, and something that I tried to write about uh, last year when the book was being written um, would, I think, mean nothing today. So I, w I wanted to be really careful of that. Hi. Uh, the question was, would I write another book about football? I, I can't see it. Um, I think I had everything, um, I said everything I had to say in, in the first book. And I know lots of things have happened to football since uh, I wrote that book, but most of them I'm not so interested in, which is the kind of money and the hype and the, uh, the relentless self-promotion of football. So I, I think it's, I'm better off leaving that one as it, as it is. <laughs> Hi. You talked about what you had to uh, remember in terms of emotions for Slam. Uh, what kind of things did you have to forget? <laughs> um, well, I think that the, the most important thing that you have to forget when you're an adult writer writing about a kid is your own frame of reference. I mean, there, there are lots of um, metaphors, analogies, um, reference points that I'd make, say, in my non-fiction, in my believer columns, that Sam absolutely doesn't have access to. Um, so, so, th so there's that is the most important thing. And then, I guess, just one's vocabulary. Sam's a kind of normal 16-year-old boy. He's not 
Um, I don't think he's destined for Oxford or Cambridge. Um, he, he is going to have a, a, a vocabulary that's hopefully more limited than mine. So these are the, uh, the parameters you set yourself, I think. We've got two more questions. Have I ever done a tape or a playlist or a CD? Um, I would like to say that uh, High Fidelity is purely my empathy and imagination, but um, I, I do share a lot of the traits of Rob. Um, so yes, I used to make people tapes. I used to make girls tapes in the hope of impressing them. Um, I think with all due respect to where we are, a lot of the fun has gone out of that because it's so easy. I mean, I still do it. I still make CDs for people. But the thing about tapes was that you had to make them in real time. Uh, if it was a 90-minute tape, it took you at least 90 minutes. In fact, it took you about four hours because um, you kept forgetting that the next track had started and then you go back and... Um, so the thing about that is that while you were listening you could maybe think about the next thing and you could make matches and marriages that um, came up only while the music's playing whereas if you do that flicky thing with the playlist um, I don't think you get quite the same quality <laughs> uh, Last question Do you think Slam or would you like Slam to become a movie? Would I like it to become a movie? Well um, I, I <coughs> I say shamefacedly that it um, is, uh, has been bought by a film company and I'm, I'm going to adapt it myself. Um, so I would, yes, I would like it to become a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case anyone from the film company is here. <laughs> Excellent. Um, and that just leaves us to say thank you very much to the Apple Store for having us here. Thank you very much to Penguin uh, for me to say hello to my mum. Um, <laughs> say thank you very much to all of you for coming and thank you very much. So your mum goes on there? Oh, mum's on iTunes. Oh, so uh, yeah? yeah oh, she's okay. on uh, Different from and my mum. And YouTube mom. too. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes thank, thank you very <laughs> much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This episode of Meet the Author was produced by iTunes and the Apple Store on London's Regent Street. To purchase the audiobook or listen to more episodes in the series, click the link below or search for Meet the Author in the iTunes Store.